Dr. K is the perfect person. He's a professor. He was at Ohio State University. Now he's at Brandeis. He is an ordained rabbi. He's on the faculty at Shalom Hartman. He loves Israel, loves the Jewish people, and he is very good at seeing multiplicity of truths. And that's what we need now. So uh, we're going to continue to learn Torah. That's what we do as Jews. We're going to continue to offer love and grace. That's what we do as humans and as Jews. And we're particularly grateful to have Dr. K here for such a time as this to launch our year of continued learning uh, for, uh, with Hartman Scholars to deepen our love of uh, the land and the people of Israel. Dr. K. Is this on? You can hear me okay? Good. Uh, thanks so much, Rabbi West, for introducing me, and, and especially thank you for uh, framing this morning's learning in the way that you did. Um, I was thinking in very, very similar terms. Um, it is um, a little odd to, to and uh, challenging emotionally to read the news that we, we read and then to sort of continue as normal. Um, but, but I think that the framing that you gave is exactly the way I'm coming at this. And especially with a subject like the one we're talking about this morning, um, this is a controversial issue. Um, and um, feelings and emotions quite reasonably run very high in all kinds of directions when talking about something like the topic this morning. Um, and given what's going on in the world and what, what happened yesterday in particular, I think we can channel our feelings and just come at this difficult topic with all the compassion and openness and sympathy we can muster so that we can learn together um, fruitfully rather than simply um, increasing contention. And that's the, that's the hope of what I have this morning. Um, the subject this morning is the new um, nation-state law that was passed in Israel over this past summer. Um, my idea is that I'm going to speak for just under an hour, I think, um, and that will leave a good chunk of time for questions and discussion, which I believe is very important for topics like this. And I want to say right at the outset that um, what I plan to do this morning is not to uh, pass judgment. I do have personal thoughts about this law, and, and if you'd like in the questions, I can, I can talk uh, more specifically about my personal feelings about this. Um, but what I plan to do in the initial presentation is not so much to give you my opinion um, as to lay out the context by which we can understand the law um, more deeply and from all kinds of different directions. Um, and the reason why I think that's tremendously important is that um, in the Jewish community and in the, um, in the Israeli discourse and in the world at large, there seem to be sort of two very fiercely held positions about this nation-state law. And the nation-state law um, says many things. We'll read some of it in, in a few moments. Um, but basically, um, it says that the state of Israel is the nation-state of the Jewish people, that the Jewish people has the exclusive right um, to self-determination, in other words, to set up a nation-state within the land, um, within the borders of the state of Israel, um, and that the state of Israel should promote uh, Jewish settlement in, in, the, in the state, and, and so on. Um, and some people look at this, the text of this law and say, 
Well, that's completely obvious. This almost goes without saying. What could possibly be objectionable in saying that Israel is a Jewish state? And why shouldn't Israel be a Jewish state? There are so many other states in the world. Serbia is a Serbian state. Finland is a Finnish state. France is a French state. So Israel should be the state for the Jewish people. There's nothing objectionable here at all. On the contrary, we should have had a law like this a long time ago. And there are other people that look at this law and find it deeply, deeply objectionable, in particular about the way that it prioritizes um, Jewish national identity, they feel, at the expense of the identity of a 20%, 20% of Israeli citizens who are not Jewish. That's a minority, but it's a pretty substantial minority. And having a basic law passed that talks exclusively about Jewish nationhood in the state of Israel is implicitly a, some feel, a deeply objectionable, even racist discrimination against people who are citizens of Israel who are not Jewish. And these are two positions that are held about this law. Now, to really understand the law and to figure out, really, is it objectionable or is it self-evident? Is it a continuation of what's just been going on all along? Or is it a massive departure from the, the historical development of Jewish nationhood and Zionism? To understand that, we need to understand the context of the law. And actually, the context on at least three levels. And I'm going to very briefly, in the presentation, outline those three levels of context, which I think are necessary to come at this with um, a deep understanding rather than a knee-jerk emotional reaction. And those three contexts are, first of all, a sort of short to medium-term context of Israeli politics. What has happened in the past 20 or 30 years um, that is the kind of more immediate political context out of which this law arose. That's the first context. The second context is a very much larger international, almost global context of the development of national identities and nationalism over the past century, century and a half. Because this law also comes out of a context that's not just local to Israel, but is actually a global context. And the third context, which is the one that I'm going to spend the most time on, is the context of the development of Zionist thought, Zionist history, and Zionist ideology. In other words, this law um, is in conversation with a long, long, long discussion inside of Zionist thought and ideology about how exactly to articulate what it means to have a Jewish state which is also democratic. What does it mean to have a state which has a stated objective to support a particular nation, or in some would, uh, as some would describe it, a particular ethnicity of the Jews, whilst at the same time being open and inclusive and democratic to citizens of the state who are not Jewish. And that's a conundrum that every state deals with. It's, a, it's the conundrum of how a majority culture deals with, accommodates a minority cultures, ethnicities, nation, national identities that live inside the state. That's a conversation that's being had in the United States, as we're well aware. It's a conversation that's being had in England, where I'm originally from, and in many other countries around the world. And in Zionist history, that particular question has a very, very long pedigree. And there are many different approaches to how people have thought about that and dealt with that over the past 
century or more of, of Zionist thought. So those are the three contexts, and that's basically the roadmap of, of what I have planned um, in the presentation before we open it up into discussion and questions. So first of all, let me say a word about um, the sort of short to medium term Israeli political context of this law. Because the law was passed in July 2018, but the real beginning of the law was in 1992. Um, and I'll explain why. Just by show of hands, who thinks Israel has a constitution? The state of Israel, does it have a constitution? Put your hands up if you think yes. Hands up if you think no. Interesting, okay. Uh, okay, so you are, the, almost all of you said Israel does not have a constitution, and um, well, I'll tell you the history and you'll, de you'll decide if you think you're right or not, because the, the, there's, there's actually a tremendous debate about it. There's actually a tremendous debate, um, not, not about what's in the constitution or what the constitution should be, but there is even a debate in Israel about whether a constitution exists. Um, in 1948, when the Declaration of Independence was declared, you, you may have seen the video of Ben-Gurion reading out the Declaration of Independence. So I don't know how many of you have read the full Declaration of Independence. It's not very long, and, and I actually put the whole thing in this source package. By the way, this source packet, we're not going to read every word of this today. I'm going to pick out sections of it, but I put the entirety of some important sources because I think it's important to have it a, as a reference. So we're, not actually, we're going to come to this in more detail later, but um, in the meantime, just um, turn to page, uh, page six, because this is a part of the Declaration of Independence that, that people don't really uh, tend to know about. If you just look at the top paragraph of page six, um, the uh, Ben-Gurion here is reading this out, and, 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 and he says that uh, if you look about four or five lines down, he calls in the Declaration of Independence for the state to... Uh, make a constitutional assemb a constituent assembly which no later than the 1st of October 1948 shall establish a constitution. So he's reading this in May 1948, and he says we should have a constitution by October 1948. So it's now October 2018, and th the constitution has started to be written. So what actually happened was um, there was a constitutional committee that was set up immediately after this, and they set, up, they, set, they set up to work straight away, and they came up with several drafts, actually, of an Israeli constitution. And if you go to the archives, there are a number of drafts that were, pro pro that were produced right then, that were, you know, full constitutional drafts that could have been um, um, put into law right away. But it never happened. And the reason it never happened, people often think that the reason is that the religious parties pushed back against the Constitution because they thought the Torah should be the Constitution. There's some truth to that, but the real truth is that the, the main reason the Constitution was not um, ratified in October 1948 was because Ben-Gurion, who himself had commissioned these constitutional drafts, Ben-Gurion in the end didn't want the Constitution to be ratified then and there for a number of reasons, one of which was that he thought that this very, very new state under all kinds of pressures, economic, military, immigration, and so on, um, under all kinds of pressures, needed a very, very strong executive authority which was, um, had maximum leeway to do what it wanted. And he thought that a constitution may kind of constrain him, and he opposed the ratification of a constitution. And what actually happened was the, the Knesset um, came to, to a kind of compromise which said, 
We're not going to abandon the idea of a constitution, but we're just going to write it bit by bit. And we're going to write it kind of clause by clause. And these clauses, as they were written, were written as just kind of regular bills in the Knesset, and they were called basic laws. And the idea is that the basic, first of all, have one basic law, and the second basic law, and then eventually we'll have 20 basic laws, and then we'll all come together and say this is the Constitution. And the first few basic laws were just very, very straightforward, like, you know, the name of the state shall be the state of Israel, and, the, you know, the governing body shall be called the Knesset, things like this. Um, and that's, that's indeed what happened. There were, there were many basic laws. In 1992, um, there was a particular basic law that was legislated, and it was called the Basic Law on Human Dignity and Liberty. And I've actually um, put this for you in, in the source sheet on page 7, which we'll come to in, in order a bit later on. But the key element to, to this law that was amended in 1994 is the, is the uh, opening sentence. Is, well, we can look actually at the second paragraph there, which explicitly says, the purpose of this basic law is to protect human dignity and liberty in order to stipulate the values of the state of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. So it was about liberty, human liberty, and democracy in Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. The Supreme Court in 1992 was headed by a justice called Aaron Barak. And Aaron Barak took this basic law to be essentially a constitutional law, and he treated it as such, um, which meant that the Supreme Court could strike down um, legislation by the Knesset that didn't agree with the principles of this law, the principles of, of liberty and dignity and Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. Um, and he ushered in a period of the Court of Israel um, that its critics called, you know, unfettered judicial activism, and its supporters called, finally, the Supreme Court is putting a, um, a check on right-wing governments of Israel. Again, there were different opinions about this. And he had a very, very strong court that was seen by the right as a left-wing judicial, acti ju judicial activism. And, and again, there was difference of opinion, but the right very much saw it in that way. And as a result, parties on the right and thinkers on the right and think tanks on the right started drafting their own legislation to counteract what they saw was the negative impact of this basic law that was enacted in 1992. The 90s and the beginning of the 2000s, there was a flurry of proposed legislation for sometimes other bits of basic laws and sometimes full constitutions that people on different parts of the Israeli um, political spectrum were putting forward. That included parties on the right that wanted to, that, that wanted to state claim to Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people and actually the first kind of legislation um, that, that, that was the, an early draft of the legislation that was passed in the summer, sort of almost a decade ago, in response to what was perceived as this left-wing judicial activism. And at the same time, other segments of Israeli society were also trying to build momentum using these basic laws to propel their own interests. So in 2006, a group of Arab um, thinkers and groups put forward what was called the Future Vision Document, in which Arab groups who were Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel for the first time argued explicitly and openly that the Palestinian Arab community inside of Israel should have its own rights, not just as individuals, but as a community. 
In other words, there should be sort of national or communal rights of Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel. So these basic laws threw up all of these bits of legislation on all different parts of the map. And because of that, the early drafts of this nation-state law um, came along. They were picked up by Bibi's government when he was elected in 2009. He himself sort of um, took hold of this legislation in 2014. He kind of co-opted legislation that had been written by other people, presumably because he thought, Netanyahu thought, that championing this kind of legislation would help his own popularity among his own base of supporters, probably correctly. Other members of his government, even during this past few years, tried to argue for other kinds of legislation. Um, Ruth Calderon, um, at one point in association with Moshe Halbatal and, and Ruth Gavison, I don't know if you know these names, we can talk about them if you want to know more about them, um, said, look, if you're going to do this, let's at least make sure that the word equality is in the basic law. How about this even for an idea? Let's take the Declaration of Independence, which doesn't it has kind of semi-legal standing. It doesn't standing as a, as a law. Let's make that the basic law with a preamble. But these ideas were all rejected. And the basic law as we see it today was kind of pushed through very contentiously. It just grazed it. The, just got over the 50% mark of the Knesset and passed in July 2018. So that's what I would call the kind of short to medium term context within Israel's political life um, of this law, it didn't just come out of nowhere in the summer of 2018. It actually has basically a 30-year history of a contentious debate about the tension between democracy and Jewishness of the state of Israel. Um, it's in some ways a backlash about, against what was perceived as judicial activism of the 90s and early 2000s um, by the right. People on the left obviously didn't, didn't see this as judicial activism, but people on the right did. Um, and that's where this, this law came from in the, in the short to medium term. So that's the first context. Let me now talk for a moment about a more global context of where this law um, is coming from and how it fits into European and actually also global history over the past century or more. So the, the key to understanding this the second layer of context is a long discourse, a long discussion in European political philosophy about the idea of self-determination and about the idea of nationalism. So the idea of self-determination is that every national group, every nation, should have, does have, the right to establish their own state within their own borders for their, for their own selves. Now, historically, the question of self-determination itself also had a, um, you know, an implicit tension uh, between the idea of national rights and what would happen to minorities living among nations. That was a question from the very start. But what you have to understand about self-determination is the idea of self-determination, the idea of um, national rights for national groups came out of a post-World War I world in which empires were breaking down and Europe, in particular Central and Eastern Europe, was full of peoples who considered themselves to have been oppressed by 
large imperial powers who had essentially, who had essentially um, kind of taken over their lands and governed them against their will for a, for a period of time. So self-determination was a philosophy that said national groups that previously had been absorbed into vast empires, the Russian Empire, the British Empire, whatever it may be, should now have the ability to exercise their right to self-governance and to live a life where they control their own historical destiny rather than being absorbed under the governance of a large imperial power that may not have their own interests primarily at heart. So, the Poles, the Georgians, the Finns, the Serbs, and the Jews, along with many other peoples, found themselves as, perceive themselves, and in many cases it's clear why they perceive themselves as small beleaguered minorities in very large, either larger super states or empires, and this was the moment where they got to establish their own right to have, to have a national identity. Now, out of this history came a, an analysis of nationalisms that made the following dichotomy. And this, this was first um, offered by uh, a theorist of, of nationalism called Hans Kohn in 1944. Um, and many other people have kind of riffed on this in different ways. They've made a distinction between civic nationalism and ethnic nationalism. Now, let me show you. This is an example, um, source number one on the, on, the, on the packet. This is a, an example of many hundreds of a, of, of, of a scholar who's talking about these two different definitions. So let me just read you Jerry Muller's definitions here that, that are in bold on page one. Civic nationalism is all people who live within a country's borders are part of the nation rather than, regardless of their ethnic, racial, or religious origins. So according to the idea of civic nationalism, what makes the nation? The borders of the state and the democratic ideals and the constitutional ideals that govern the people inside that state. And historically, people have pointed to France and to some degree also the United States as paradigms of this example of civic nationalism. What makes you French? What makes you American? What makes you American is not that you're Catholic or Jewish or Protestant. It's not um, where you came from or what language you speak. It's your commitment to the Constitution of the United States of America and the democratic constitutional ideals um, that, that are embedded, the values that are embedded in the um, history of, of American political thought. The idea is that civic nationalism creates a national identity, which is very important for our existential sense of belonging, but at the same time is maximally inclusive. And there, there isn't, in, in theory, a conflict between majority and minority because everyone has equal access and equal claim to being part of a nation as long as they um, ascribe to the values that um, underlie the state and its constitution. That's in theory, and I'm saying in theory because I'm going to throw in a whole load of caveats in just a second. That's in theory the idea of civic nationalism. By contrast, the next bolded part of the, of the source, ethnic nationalism, what Muller calls ethno-nationalism, the core of the ethno-nationalist idea is that nations are defined by a shared heritage which usually includes a common language, common faith, common um, ethnic ancestry. 
In other words, when it comes to ethnic nationalism, it's not the vague constitutional values, the borders of a state that create the nation. The nation actually precedes all of that. The nation precedes the constitution. The nation is a group of people have a shared culture, a shared history, a shared language, shared foods, tend to marry among each other, have a shared sense of being in the same family of people. It's the nation that comes first and then creates a nation state to hold the nation inside it. This is the ethnic nationalist ideal. And many commentators have felt that obviously civic nationalism is preferable because civic nationalism avoids all of the problems of jingoism and exclusivism and racism and majorities and minorities. Civic nationalism, look, we're all part of one big nation, we're all part of one big family, and so there's no problems of majorities and minorities. Whereas ethnic nationalism can be problematic because even though it starts out as small national groups who are beleaguered and occupied and oppressed by larger empires who finally have their ability to come into history on their own terms, when they get there and they establish themselves 100 years later, they find themselves as an established nation state with an ethnic, dis an ethnic definition of what the nation is, which means that the minorities who do not share that ethnic, ethnic definition but nonetheless live within the borders of that state find themselves in a deeply problematic position because they find themselves either in law or in fact, or both, excluded from um, positions of power um, subject to discrimination, even racism within the state. And many ana analysts of these two ideas of nationalism tend to prioritize this idea of civic nationalism over ethnic nationalism, and I think for very, very good reason. Having said that, and here come all the caveats. Having said that, here come all the caveats. Even states, first of all, even states that have that are the paradigms of civic nationalism, France, the United States, for the first more than a century, 150 years of their existence, excluded all women from political life. In the United States, this idea of civic nationalism and the constitution and freedom and justice and equality seemed to fit perfectly well with the enslavement of African Americans, with subsequently with Jim Crow, and to this day um, with all kinds of structurally embedded racism and discrimination against people of color and all kinds of other groups in the United States. France, everyone can be French as long as they just sign up to French ideals. France has got the most tremendous internal turmoil about how to deal with people who technically are French. I mean, these people are French citizens, but there are many um, people that think, them, think of themselves as more French somehow than um, people of North African descent, mostly, most of whom are Muslims, most of whom came to France after the end of the French imperial um, period. Everyone's a citizen. This should be civic nationalism. Everyone should be the same. Yes, but some people are more French than others. Some people have more access to resources and po political power than others. So that's even in civic nationalism. So I guess the point I'm making is that even in what seem to be the paradigms of civic nationalism, there is always some core, some kernel of um, ethnic, um, an ethnic element to even the, the um, paradigms, the archetypes of civic nationalism. And the reason for that is pretty clear. Why do we need nationalism at all? 
Some people would say, get rid of the nation. It's more trouble than it's worth. That's an argument. It's an argument I'd be willing to entertain in theory. It just so happens, though, that the way the world is built today, the way that most people on the surface of the globe satisfy their primal existential need for a sense of belonging and commitment to a larger group, one primary way in which people do that is through what they call the nation. And I'm, whether or not in principle it's a good thing, and maybe it is, and maybe it isn't, but whether or not in principle it's a good thing, in practice that's how people organize themselves. And nations, civic or ethnic, however they're called, tend to have some core of this ethnic sense of belonging that needs to be genuinely faced if questions of discrimination and equality are going to be dealt with properly. And that's true globally. So that's the global political context in a nutshell of the past 150 years of also where this nation-state law of the state of Israel um, comes out. Now let me devote the rest of this time to talking about the third context, which is the context of the nation-state law of 2018 in history of Jewish political thought of the past 100, 150 years, and in particular, the development of Zionist thought. To understand that, we need to go back to 1789. I promise I'll go through the intervening years relatively quickly. 1789 was the year of the French Revolution. Um, France was, uh, was the first state in world history to grant full and equal citizenship to, um, to, to Jews. But it was only after a fierce debate that France decided to do that. And in a way, the debate didn't end in 1789 or in 1791 when France eventually um, gave citizenship to all of the Jews within its borders. But in a way, that um, debate actually went on for at least another century until the Dreyfus Affair, which was, took place basically another, from 1894 well into the beginning of the 20th century. This was a long, long debate about should Jews be able to integrate into France as full citizens. And I'm going to talk about France for two minutes, but the things I'm about to say about France, these kinds of discussions took place with slight variations um, in all the countries of Europe and beyond. And the question of the emancipation of Jews, i.e. the granting of full political rights to Jews, um, occupied many, many states of um, Europe well into the beginning of the 20th century and in some cases, in some senses, beyond. In Source 2, we see a speech that was given by the Count of Clermont-Tonnerre in the French National Assembly in 1789. And Clermont-Tonnerre was a proponent of granting citizenship to Jews. He supported the idea of giving citizenship to Jews. But he would do it only in one way. And look at the bolded piece of source number two. He wrote, we must refuse everything to the Jews as a nation and accord everything to the Jews as individuals. This is one of the most important lines pertaining to Jews in, in modern times. We'll, grant, we'll refuse everything to the Jews as a nation, but grant everything to them as individuals. 
See, what Clement Tonnerre was getting at here is Jews are puzzling. Jews are, Jews are uncategorizable. They're odd. Is Judaism a religion? Does Judaism fall into the same category as Protestantism or Sikhism? Actually, Sikhism is also a bad example for other reasons. Does Judaism fall into the, into the same example as Lutheranism or Calvinism? Or? It's a religious idea. It's a faith. You can be Jewish, irrespective of your ethnic identity or anything like that. Or is Judaism actually a people? Are Jews a people? Are Jews a nation? Now, the actual answer is yes and yes. And that in a hundred years before Clement Tonnerre was speaking, if you stopped a Jew on the street and said, listen, uh, do you think Judaism is more of a religion or a national identity? They wouldn't know, of course, of course both. I mean, the idea of choosing one or the other would, would have seemed odd. And actually Jews for centuries had, wherever they had lived under Muslim rule, under Christian rule, had been religious groups, but there were religious groups that basically governed themselves. They were kind of semi-autonomous governing units. So Jew Jewish communities had their own court systems, had their own um, presidents, and they, they, they basically they had their own taxation system, even if they'd lived within larger states, which they always did. So they were both politic a political unit and also a religious unit. And what Clément Tonnerre was saying is, you can have full citizenship, but only if you shed all of the political elements of your Jewish identity. If you can live here like Protestants live here, like Catholics live here, great. You can be a French Catholic. You can be a French Protestant. You can be a French Jew. Great. But if you Jews continue to hold on to this sense that you are a political, you have a political identity, you are, you are a national people, you are, you are people who are, have a national identity, then there's no room for you here because what we need you to be is French. And you can't be a member of the French nation and also a member of the Jewish nation. Now, many Jews said that is worth it. It is worth giving up our political identity as Jews in order to be fully embraced by modern European states and being given full political rights. It's worth it. So just take a look at source number two here. This is the Pittsburgh platform um, of Reform Judaism of 1885. There were many other such statements and, uh, um, expressed during this period. Um, this is the Pittsburgh platform in which the, um, the, the official statement of Reform Judaism of the time said, in bold, we consider ourselves no longer a nation but a religious community and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine nor sacrificial worship, etc., etc. So Reform Judaism at that time, at the end of the 19th century, explicitly said Judaism is now a religion and not a national identity. And they did that to say, we are here. We're in America, we're in France, we're in Germany, wherever we are, we're here to stay as a religious group of people of American national identity, French national identity, German national identity. The whole idea of messianism, of return to Palestine, that's all gone. Now, as, as you know, the reform movement within uh, 50 years after this had reversed this position and had come to embrace Zionism with the Columbus Platform of 1937 and, had, and then consistently um, supported um, Zionists um, subsequently. But this was very much a, a, um, a moment in time. So that was one option of Jews, to get rid of their whole idea of being a political unit altogether and just to embrace religious identity. That was one option. And many people took it, but some people didn't take it. 
and the archetypal group of Jews who rejected this position were the Zionists. Zionists and most Zionist leaders were not religious, were anti-religious in many cases, said that even if you have some kind of religious identity, and many did not and actively attempted to reject it, the primary identity of Jews is a national identity. We're a national people. And as such, we have the right, like any other national people, to have our own land. They saw this rejection of the political identity of the Jews as a, a terrible idea, as something that was giving in to um, a European political ideology that in the end had no interest in Jews. And they pointed to the ongoing anti-Semitism all over Europe. They pointed to the Dreyfus Affair. They pointed to pogroms in Kishinev and other places. They pointed to anti-Semitism in Germany as proofs that this bargain that Clement Tonnerre set out for the Jews, give up your political identity and we'll embrace you, had failed. Now, others continued to believe that it would succeed in the end. But for Zionists and some others, it, it had failed. It was not going to succeed. So the, Jew, the Jewish political identity was going to be the primary political identity. But then the question is, the question of self-determination and minorities. What do you then do if you say, we the Jewish people are a political people, we are a nation, we have the right to self-determination in our own land, that land is the land of Israel, but it just so happens that a lot of people are living there who are not Jewish. So now what? So how did Zionists in particular deal with that tension between their insistence on their Jewish political identity as a nation, but also their commitment to other kinds of ideals, including democracy, equality, justice, and so on. Let's have a very brief overview for about 10 minutes of the ways that Zionists have done, did this over the years, and then we'll stop and open this up for questions. And this will really place the nation law into a very stark and important context. Let's begin with uh, source number four here. So this is the Basel program that was agreed upon by the delegates of the first Zionist Congress in 1897 in Basel in Switzerland. Zionism seeks to establish a home for the Jewish people in Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, secured under public law. And if you'll just look now um, to the particular language in that sentence, Zionism seeks to establish a home for the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Where is the word state in that? Not there. So in 1897, the first Zionist Congress, the Zionist Congress was not calling for a Jewish state at all. It was calling for a home for the Jews. Where does it say that it should encompass the entirety of the land of Israel? Nowhere. It should be in the land of Israel, somewhere in. This is a period which is still the height of the imperial period. Herzl and other Zionist leaders actually thought that the best option at this time was to have some kind of national home in the land of Israel, but they were fine with it being under the Ottoman Empire. They were fine with it being under the British Empire. Empires had lots of national units that where, where people had their kind of small territories that were under imperial control, but had some, sense, some um, 
um, some semblance of self-government for national groups. This was the sense that Herzl was getting at with this statement in 1897. Now, things um, changed quite quickly. Ah, so for, in source number five, we have the Balfour Declaration of 1917. Here again, the Balfour Declaration, which was considered to be a huge coup for the Zionist movement and led to tremendous celebration among Zionists. If you look in the second paragraph of the Balfour Declaration, His Majesty's government, of course, um, Britain just right then had conquered or was about to conquer the land of Israel, Palestine, from the Ottoman Turks who were at that moment disintegrating in the midst of World War I. Lord Balfour, the Foreign Secretary, writes, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine, not Palestine becoming, but somewhere in Palestine, the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people. Skipping a bit. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. And this was, again, no mention of a nation state, very clear insistence that any Jewish home in, the, in Palestine should not interfere with the rights of other people living there. And this was accepted and embraced and applauded by the Zionist movement at the time. It maybe wasn't everything they wanted, but this was the first and most prominent um, recognition of, the Zion, of Zionist goals and endorsement of Zionist goals by a major world power. Now, it may not surprise us that in the very, very early days of the Zionist movement, there was no mention of the state and there was an insistence on equality. And of course, the British are going to say the same thing in 1917. But the next source, I think, in some ways is the most striking. The next source is a, a piece of writing by David Ben-Gurion in 1937. Now, the context of this piece that Ben-Gurion is writing is that in 1936, there was an Arab uprising in Palestine, an anti-Zionist Arab uprising, which led to tremendous violence and was followed by what was called the Peel Commission. So Lord Peel um, was an English aristocrat and politician who was in, put in charge of a commission to figure out what should be done in Palestine. This was actually the first commission that, that first proposed a partition of Palestine into, to, into two areas, um, which was at that time ignored. It was accepted a decade later. So the Peel Commission went around and, and, and enlisted testimonies from all kinds of people, including Ben-Gurion, and this was his testimony. So it is true that he is probably saying here, things here that he thinks the British will want to hear in order to continue supporting Zionism. But at the same time, he is, doesn't have to say anything, and th these are the words that Ben-Gurion himself wrote. Source 6. If Palestine is our country, it is not to the exclusion of other inhabitants. It is also their country, the country of those who are born here and have no other homeland. Skipping to the bold. We did not say that we want to make in Palestine a Jewish state. Skipping again to the end. It is not part of our aim to dominate anybody else. If Palestine were an empty country, we could say a Jewish state because a Jewish state would consist of Jews only and our self-governance government in Palestine would not concern others. But there are other inhabitants in Palestine who are here. And as we do not want to be at the mercy of others, they have a right not to be at the mercy of Jews. A state, he writes, may imply that since there are two nationalities, it may imply the domination by the Jewish majority of the minority. But that is not in our aim. We take into consideration the fact that there are non-Jews in Palestine and it was not our aim, and we do not need to dominate them. 
A state may imply a wish to dominate a minority, the wish to dominate others. So here's Ben-Gurion as late as 1937 arguing, and he said other things at the same time. This is not the only thing Ben-Gurion is saying. He's speaking to the British. As I, as I said, that's the context. But nonetheless, here's Ben-Gurion very explicitly saying as late as 1937 that he doesn't even want to use the term Jewish state out of the fear that that implies the domination of a Jewish majority of a non-Jewish minority. And just as Jews don't want to be dominated, so do other peoples not want to be dominated. A decade later, the Declaration of Independence took a very similar line with the single exception that by 1948, the idea of the state was considered by Ben-Gurion and many other Zionists to be a necessity. By the way, even then, there were some who pushed against the idea of having something called a Jewish state. But by then, it had been adopted as really a, a, a necessity, in part because of the Shoah, also for other reasons. But nonetheless, even though the terminology of a Jewish state was there, the ideas of equality were still around. So if we go to page five to the bottom there, this is the Declaration of Independence in bold. This right is a natural right of the Jewish people to be masters of their own fate, like all other nations in their own sovereign state. This is essentially the doctrine of self-determination as applied to the Jewish nation. However, skip to page six, again in bold. The, that bold paragraph contains within it two ideas, as we'll see. The first idea is the um, ingathering of the exiles, as it was called in this document, the return of Jews to the land of Israel. The state of Israel will be open, I'm reading here, open for Jewish immigration and for the ingathering of the exiles. It will, that's the first sentence. And yet immediately, without even breaking a sentence, it goes on, it will foster the development of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants. It will be based on freedom, justice, and peace. As envisaged by the prophets of Israel, it will ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex. It will guarantee freedom of religion, conscience, language, education, and culture, etc., etc. In the same sentence that Ben-Gurion talks about what would become the law of return for Jews, he goes on to talk about um, equality, non-discrimination against anybody, irrespective of religion, race, sex, and so on. Now, it's really important to note, I, I'm not a uh, naive here. This is a foundational document of the State of Israel, but actual lived life in the State of Israel did not always bear out these values, and to this day, do not always bear out these values. At the time that this document was ratified in May 1948, um, Israel was, um, had been for some months already, there'd been a war between Jewish Zionists in Palestine and some of the Arab inhabitants of, of Palestine. Immediately after this, war broke out with five neighboring Arab states. From this point, from 1948 until 1966, Arab Palestinian inhabitants of Israel were under military rule until 1966. Um, and there has been a long history of um, the exclusion of Arab citizens of Israel from um, political power. Um, the Arab parts of Israel have been um, 
systematically sort of underfunded distribution as, of, of, of the goods of the state have not reached them as much as they have the Jewish, other Jewish areas. And this is not me speaking, this is the OR Commission of 2009, which was commissioned by the Israeli government to investigate these kinds of discriminations within, within the state of Israel. This is something that's recognized and, 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 and head on by, by the state itself. So I'm not being naive here as if to say that you know this was the Declaration of Independence, so there's full equality there, no. But what I am saying is that the documents of, the, of Zionist thought up until very, very recently that even those that talk explicitly and promoted and pushed and championed the idea of Jews as a nation and the Jewish right to self-determination and Israel as the um, nation state of the Jewish people, all of those documents to date also talk about equality, non-discrimination and openness to all people. Whether or not that was actualized in practice is an important question but nonetheless, the documents do express that. That context, I think, is really important, and here I'll, I'll, pull, I'll end for questions and discussion, that when we come to the basic law itself on page seven, um, source nine, which opens the land of Israel as the historical homeland of the Jewish people in which the state of Israel was established. The state of Israel is the nation state of Jewish people in which it realizes its natural, cultural, religious, and historical right to self-determination. True and true. And it, th those statements do not contradict in any way. In fact, they, they are clearly natural continuation of the other kinds of documents that we've read. But then, the exercise of the right to national self-determination of the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. And going on um, to um, the bottom of the page, Hebrew is the state language, and the Arabic language has a special status in the state thereby technically demoting Arabic from a formal official language of the state to a, 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 a language with, quote, um, special status. And um, let's look at clause number seven. The state views the development of Jewish settlement as a national value and shall act to encourage and promote its establishment and strengthening. And that clause is primarily directed against a Supreme Court decision in, 2000, in the year 2000 called the Ketsira decision in which an Arab family petitioned to live in a, in a, in a new yeshuv called Ketsira, which was a Jewish town, and they were rejected by the town because they, quote, wouldn't fit into the social fabric of the town or something like that. And the Supreme Court said that's discrimination. Um, because of the basic law of 1992 that we read before, there's you know, freedom of all people, freedom and dignity, and this is discriminatory. And they insisted that the town admit this family. And I think that clause seven here of this nation state law is explicitly kind of putting into legislation something that will allow in future people to make those kinds of, what we call in this country, redlining essentially of, of Jewish districts and, and towns. So whereas many elements of this law are perfect continuations of Zionist ideas and statements and documents that have come before over the period of the last century, what's different about it is some, to some extent what's added, what's put in, like the clauses that I just drew your attention to, but to some extent what is missing is more important, which is that unlike the Declaration of Independence and unlike other similar laws and statements made by Zionist leaders on all parts of the spectrum, I could have quoted to you from Jabotinsky just as easily as from Ben-Gurion, from all parts of the spectrum. What is missing here is a counterpoint to 
the value and the natural right to self-determination of the Jewish people the counterpoint of equality and non-discrimination to other people. So this law is interesting. To some, it's great, and to some, it's horrifying. But it's the, the point of departure of this law is not so much this bit, but the missing counterpoint. That's what stands out here. So is this a massive departure from the past? In some ways, it depends on how you think about the past. If you think about the past as prioritizing, you know, the, the values in the Declaration of Independence, the statement of Ben-Gurion that I read, the goals of many Jewish Israelis over the years to open up Israel to make it more inclusive, more just, more free, then, yeah, this could be, and in many ways is a departure from, from the past. If you're looking at the less savory, more problematic, discriminatory elements of Israeli politics over the years. This, in some ways, is a kind of furtherance of elements in Israeli society that have been there all along. Um, so what your opinions are about this law, I'll leave to you, and I'm now going to open up so we can, I can hear from you, and we can hear um, But the historical context is absolutely imperative to understand where this is coming from and the importance that it may have in the coming years. Okay, so um, do we have a hard end at 11? Or, uh, you tell me what you... So, mm -hmm. um, I've got a microphone, and anyone who wishes to ask a question, uh, please keep your questions short, not speeches, short questions. Uh, th there was actually some backsliding on the question of, uh, of uh, self-determination between 1948 and, and 2018. It's the, the, during, in 1975, when the uh, UN Zionism resolution was uh, being uh, debated, uh, we circulated a petition that was eventually published in, in the Harvard Crimson, signed by many faculty and students. And the Israeli consulate sent people to us specifically asking us to take out the language about self-determination. Uh, at the time, it was a, even though it was a left le, uh, government of the left, it was a criticism from the right, and uh, the idea was that they, the concern was that the Arabs would have a similar right. So, could you sort of look at that dip? Do you want? Should we ask for get a, take a few? A few questions, okay? Yeah. If that's your sure. Again, short questions, please. So why should I not be outraged at this and really angry at Israel and withhold my support from the state? That's a short question. <laughs> short questions, please. Uh, there were attempts to broaden the law to include language about equality. What was the stated rationale for not including that language? Why don't we take one more question, and that's a nice bouquet of four questions. That's a Jewish move. Right. Could you comment on the gradual process of Arab and particularly Muslim Arab-Israeli adjustment as opposed, say, to the progress of the Druze or other Christian Arabs becoming gradually more comfortable paying their taxes, becoming part of the normative Israel? Great. Okay. Let's leave it there for a second. Um, uh, regarding self-determination, first of all, yes, of course. Um, 
the, just in terms of global politics, self-determination also starts to get a bad rap when the nation states set up for the protection of ethnic minorities in at the aftermath of World War I and then again in the aftermath of World War II start to dissolve in many cases into, into ethnic violence. That was one of the kind of pushbacks against the idea of self-determination. And in, particularly in the Zionist case, exactly, if Palestinians, which they just about were in 1975, were starting to get recognition as a national group internationally, that the idea of a, a Palestinian nation among Palestinians is around 100 years old, a bit more. But in the 70s, it had started to get um, um, credence by um, sort of international bodies as well. So then there, some Israelis perceive that as a threat to Jewish self-determination, and, and that's, that's exactly right. And in some ways, this law is a response to that, although less nuanced perhaps than the statement that you were talking about in the, in the 70s and that you came up with. Um, I'm going to take question four first and then two and three together because they seem quite important. Um, so the, the Palestinian Arab Muslim population of Israel um, has um, developed in all kinds of interesting ways over the past 70 years. Um, and paradoxically, there have been essentially uh, two kinds of development in that community. On the one hand, that community has become uh, a lot more Israeli. Um, as you say, a lot more engaged in Israeli politics, a lot more um, um, sort of accepting of you know, taxation and other kinds of, of Israeli governance, um, a lot more willing to speak, teach, and learn Hebrew, um, a, a more mobilized in terms of upward social mobility in, in, in certain areas. That's one trend. Simultaneously, there has been another trend to the increased um, nationalization as a national minority. In other words, the Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel have in the past few decades um, developed a stronger sense of themselves as not just Arabs or Palestinians, but as a national minority within the Israeli state. And those two developments seem to not fit together, but nonetheless, they've both been happening at the same time. And, and in some ways, this law is also a pushback against this sense that Arabs can be a national minority with national rights in, in Israel. It's, a, it's an attempt to kind of preempt um, any kind of legislation that may lead in that direction. That, that this is very much on the radar of the people that drafted this bill. Um, what do we make of the absence of equality and what are you going to, you know, if you're furious, is there any reason to support Israel anymore? So the absence of equality here um, is actually a, it was a, a very a, um, self-conscious and, and it, was, it, was a it was a choice. It was an active choice by the people that drafted the bill initially and by Netanyahu who eventually kind of co-opted it and put it through. Um, many others in the government came and in, really wanted the idea of, of, of equality to be there. Um, it's actually possible that um, Netanyahu enjoyed the idea that he could say no to the, to the inclusion of equality, particularly because it gave him the excuse when some of the center-left, people like Lapid, in his government insisted on equality, this actually gave him the opportunity to force them to resign or to fire them from the government, which actually allowed him to call, call new elections. Don't forget Netanyahu, I mean, actually just now news is coming out of yet another recommendation to indict um, on bribery charges. Netanyahu has been under kind of a legal cloud for a very long time, and he's a kind of political, you know, 
genius at, at survival. And this um, question of courts gave him the opportunity to fire some of the left and center-left members of his coalition to call new elections to kind of consolidate his base and to move the government further to the right with him in, in firmer control. So partially it may have been an ideological opposition to the idea of equality, but also it served a very short-term and very personal um, goal of Netanyahu himself. Um, Furious with Israel. Yeah, I, yeah. My pause wasn't that I'd forgotten. My oh. pause was that I. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I'm not going to tell you what to do, obviously. Um, here's how I feel about things. And maybe it will resonate or, or not. You'll, you'll tell me. Um, I think Israel is a state of many, many contradictions. Um, and occasionally, the, there are very, very prominent moments in legislation or other elements of Israeli political and social life that are just, that just kind of a, sent up a flare and that are picked up by the New York Times, which writes about it for a long time, and the New Yorker, and, all, and, and you, you're kind of very, very aware of it in the United States. Um, and for people who, like you, and, and, and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say, I, I think this law is, um, is, is, is deeply, deeply, deeply problematic, as you probably gather from some, some of my comments. Um, and so for people that, that, that find this law problematic, you know, there's a tendency to despair and to think, well, like, why am I interested in this whole project whatsoever? Like, even if you were in principle um, supportive of a Jewish state, you're supportive of a Jewish state which embraces ideas of democracy and justice and that essentially negotiates between those two values which are intention but not necessarily contradictory, but it negotiates very much in the favor of one over the other leads to a danger um, of a state which is a Jewish state, but which is a Jewish either less or eventually conceivably very much less democratic, jingoistic, um, some would say racist, many would say racist in this particular case. So then what do you do? Um, so uh, for me, it's, it's important always to, to keep in mind that even though that there are these elements that, that really show their heads in a, in a very, very prominent way, there is a still a lot of other stuff going on. There are 120 members of the Knesset, and 62 of them voted for this law. Um, there are many think tanks and organizations that are um, strong proponents of this law or things to the right of it. There are many think tanks that, that, and, and political um, leaders that push in the other direction. They are very much, admittedly, on the back foot in Israel right now, very much on the back foot. And the left in Israeli political life is really um, struggling. Um, but let me give you an imperfect analogy, an, an imperfect and not exactly overlapping analogy, but it's an analogy. Imagine you were somebody who was living in Israel looking at the United States. <laughs> right? And so, somebody who was living in Israel and looking at the United States, maybe as an American expat who's on the left, and saying, that, why do I care anymore about the United States? Look at who's in power, look at what he's saying, look at these laws, look at the, look at the discrimination, look at the racism. Uh, um, I just, you know, wash my hands of it. But if you're here, you know that less than 50% of the population, you know, voted for the current president, that there are all kinds of organizations that push in other directions. I have 
good, dear friends in Israel, Jewish friends who are Zionists, who serve in the army, who are active in political life, academic life, and so on, who, who have criticisms of the state of Israel that if they were said around a Shabbat table in Newton would probably get them thrown out. But there, as committed Zionists, this is the kind of language that they sometimes speak. And again, you don't have to go to that, in that direction either, but all I'm saying is, if you're looking for a reason to keep on engaging with Israel, even when stuff like this happens, which you are apparently quite uncomfortable with, furious with, um, remember that that's not the only thing that's going on. And if you're looking for people to support and you are that way inclined, then there are organizations and people to support that would be very much on your wavelength. Yes, we have uh, time for a few more questions. Uh, we'll take uh, David. Saba Arakat constantly says, why in the world can the Jews have a, a state because they're not a nation, yeah. they're simply a religion. And I've wondered whether some of the nation state law was a reaction to that, to the, to the going Palestinian line, that the Jews have no right to a state because they, they aren't a people, they're simply a religion. And uh, David and Carol. Can you give us some idea of the range of responses to the arithmetic question of today Jews are in the, ma in the majority in the voting democracy, but what happens when the birth rates get us 30 years in the future and the balance tips and now you have Jews as a minority voting in a democracy to try to preserve the nation's character? Carol. Hi, thank you very much. It strikes me that the one word that you didn't mention is religion, and that there could be a kind of religious nationalism in addition to ethnic nationalism and civic nationalism, and it seems to me that the flow of politics in the state of Israel today is towards some kind of merging of what I would call a religious nationalism with an ethnic nationalism. And our last question, we have two nights of satyrs, so our last of the four questions is from Louise Wolf. Um, I was just going to point out that what you've done is largely give um, a history of these legal concepts and it has to be looked at in interplay with the, the historical events unfolding and challenging Israelis um, throughout the course of this and how it may have modified their hopefulness about being able to be safe within um, Israel with the earlier ideas which so much appealed to them. So I think it's, it's tough to give a legal hist a history of legal and philosophical concepts without the counterpoint of historical events. Okay, so let me start with that right away. Um, I think that's an incredibly valuable point. I've talked about context, but I've talked mainly about intellectual context and not as much about political, military, international context of, the, of that kind. Um, and there are many in Israel, especially many Jews in Israel, and for that matter, many Jews worldwide, who look at Israel and say, Israel is a beleaguered, small state surrounded by all of these other countries with vast armies, Iran with a nuclear arsenal, which explicitly talks about wiping it out, Hezbollah, which is an army which is larger than the Lebanese army on its northern border, Hamas in the southwest, ISIS is now in Sinai. So this isn't the time to be talking about equality. And, and that's, a, that's a statement that, that's often made. And it's an emotional impulse which I uh, deeply um, sympathize and I understand. 
At the same time, a couple of things. First of all, um, there is an element, I think, in the history of Israel, um, of Israeli Jews and Jews elsewhere, because, totally understandably, because of the memory of the profound historical trauma of the 20th century that lives on in our bodies and in our families, to um, have a not always perfectly clear risk assessment of the present. In other words, past trauma may sensitize us to threat, and, which is good as a defense mechanism, but sometimes we can be over, overly sensitized to threat. And Israel is definitely has all of these very significant threats. It's also a massive regional power um, with a huge and significant army, enormous financial and military support from the United States. Um, it's been around for quite a while now. Um, and that, that assessment needs to, be, needs to be balanced out. I'm not dismissing it, but it needs to be balanced out. And I just remind you that the Declaration of Independence that we read, which talks about equality and justice and so on, was written in May 1948 at a moment when Zionist Jews in Palestine had been at war with many of the Arabs of Palestine since November of 1947 for those five or six months already. Ben-Gurion was reading that Declaration of Independence at a time when his advisors said to him, if you declare a state, we will be invaded by Jordan, Syria, Egypt, um, and Iraq, and Lebanon. And the chances of survival are about 50%. In other words, as he was reading that, he was thinking, there's a 50% chance none of us will be here in a year. And then, at that moment, with that going on, he still read that clause about freedom and justice and equality. So I think that I'm not dismissing at all a sense of threat and so on, but we do have examples of people who lived under far more severe pressures and still insisted on the principles of equality and inclusion. Um, and I think that those could be examples for us. Um, religion and ethnic identity, that's a very long conversation. And the very short version is, I completely agree with you. <laughs> and we can talk afterwards. Um, 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 yes, Jews as a religion and not a nation. That was indeed the position of the Palestinian National Convention right the way from 1968 when the revised convention was, was first put into play and Arafat became the leader. And they were drawing then on comments like the Pittsburgh platform that we read together. In other words, there were lots of Jews, not in the 60s and 70s and today, but there were lots of Jews in the early 20th century that adopted that position. And Palestinians absolutely adopted it. And yes, Zionist ideology pushed very forcefully back against that and rejected it completely. Absolutely right. As far as numbers, um, um, as far as numbers, okay. It is sometimes said by people uh, who want to preserve um, both the Jewish and democratic nature of the state that um, demographically over time, um, if Israel does not, and, and this is not normally said about Isra the borders of Israel itself, the 1948 borders, but about the borders of um, Israel plus the West Bank, um, that particularly in that whole area, um, in time, the demographic arrows are going in such a way that in time, Jews will be in the minority in that place. So basically, Israel has got the choice of either helping create a Palestinian state and stopping to govern the West Bank, or 
um, and, and thereby being able to be both Jewish and democratic or not, in which case it will be probably neither Jewish nor democratic. Um, and the responses to that are varied. Um, some are um, don't care, we've got to look after ourselves because of all these threats. Some are, to my mind, um, well, I mean, there is, there is a debate, let's say, about the dem demography. Some are saying, no, Arab birth rates are falling and Jewish birth rates are rising. Um, I think those are largely um, kind of self-justificatory delusions, um, but, but I'm not a demographer and, and people, like serious demographers, say that kind of thing. Um, to be honest with you, this may be a little controversial, I'm, I'm um, a little uncomfortable, although I understand that whole discussion, I'm a little uncomfortable um, with these uh, policies that are all about, we need to act in such a way so that the Jews can be a majority. Um, I, I mean, obviously I see the, the, the value of that and the significance of that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's um, crazy. I don't think it's necessarily objectionable. Um, but I think in some ways we would do better at thinking less of um, numbers, making sure that we're, we're the majority in a place, and thinking more um, about policies that enact certain kinds of values. And by values, I don't just mean the values of democracy. We can include in that category of values also the Jewish values of, you know, um, the Jewish symbols of state, the Sabbath being the day off in the state, Keshrut being available in state buildings, and um, the Jewish calendar being the calendar of the state, um, Jewish terminology being part of Israeli law, legal systems, and that kind of thing. So when I say values, I don't just mean some kind of vague justice values. Um, but I'm more comfortable when we prioritize those things than um, counting people, uh, uh, even though I understand that. But I think that there may be a different way of thinking about it more generally, which I know is not what you were saying, but still, I'll, I'll say that. Uh, okay. So I just want to say, Alex K., thank you. Thank you very much. Alex, I just want to close with two quick thoughts. Uh, one is I want to just name, put language to what just happened, uh, which is just a remarkable tribute to you. You took, an ex we're a very diverse group of thinkers. Uh, if there's 100 people here, there's 100 different thoughts, each deeply held, very diverse. And the tension of Israel as a Jewish state and a democratic state is, to use one of your lovely words, contentious. And yet, you were able to discuss it in a thoughtful, serious, respectful way. Uh, no hysteria, no, uh, no, the, the temperature never really rose to a point of feverish pitch because you're so thoughtful and intelligent. And everything you said was just obviously true because you just looked at it in a very scholarly way. And to be able to, it, you're like a bomb diffuser. Uh, to be able to do that uh, in this group with this kind of a topic is truly a tribute to you. So first of all, Alex, thank you. Second and final point is what you just did is very Hartman. Hartman talks about the real deal. Israel that we love so deeply and eternally in all of its complexity. That's what Hartman does. That's what all Hartman faculty does. That's what Hartman does as an experience. So two last things to close by. First, uh, after a few minute break, Amy and Brian are going to have a conversation about inviting you to Hartman. 
where what Alex just did you would be doing in Jerusalem with Alex and with a number of other faculty members at Hartman encountering Israel, the real Israel in all of its complexity, which we love, and trying to figure out how can we be faithful to the Israel we love and to our democratic values that we love, and to do it in a diverse community where we don't agree on stuff, but we can agree that we're gonna approach all these complicated issues with a lot of love and mutual respect. Uh, so that's, in a few minutes, we're gonna talk about, um, about inviting you all to come to Hartman. I will just tell you, uh, and we've done this uh, nine years in a row. Amy, Brian, a number of you are repeat uh, uh, learners. It's the best week of the year. It's just the best learning of the year. Uh, it's the best Torah. It's the best Israel. It's the best community building. Uh, give yourself a great spiritual vacation, which is to go to Jerusalem to learn Torah at Hartman. And, and if you're at all even possibly interested in it, come and meet with us. Where are we going to be doing that? in the Gantt Chapel in a few minutes. Last final point is we always try to bring Hartman here as well as go from here to Hartman. Our next Hartman speaker is Yehuda Kurtzer. He's talking about such an important issue. Here's the title of it, and you, you feel this in your gut. You feel this in your kishka. The moral, the political, and the partisan Jewish community and Jewish values in the era of polarization. We're a few days out from the midterm. Uh, people here have such deeply, deeply, deeply divided feelings about so many issues. And the one temperature that's not on the faucet is lukewarm, right? Tepid is not, is not on the menu. People feel what they feel on the issues of the day with great intensity and great conviction and in exactly opposite ways. And we all think we're right and we all think the position we hold is moral, and we're like this. So how do you make a community of shared values where there is such difference? And that is what Yehuda Kurtzer is gonna talk about on November the 8th, 11-8 at 8 p.m. There is not a more urgent question of the day. So Alex, thank you, thank you for coming, and I hope to see you again in a few minutes to talk about being in Israel this summer, thank you.